Morning. Man, y'all are a good-looking bunch this morning. I don't know if anybody's told you that this morning or not, but you really do look good with all the Christmas colors that are out there. And so Merry Christmas to you today. And from, uh, on behalf of Ivy Creek Baptist Church, but on behalf of my family and myself, we want to wish all of you a very Merry Christmas this morning. And I can't imagine being anywhere else and being able to do anything else on Christmas Day that would be more God-honoring and, and something that we should, as a, as a uh, family, be here than to, than to recognize that this is the Lord's Day. But it is also the day that we celebrate uh, our Lord's birth. And so it's exciting to be here uh, among the family of God this morning celebrating that. And I think it's only appropriate... That on a day like today, when we celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, that we read a narrative that describes what happened on that first Christmas. And so this morning, we're going to do that from Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 2. So if you brought your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope that you did, please take them. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. <clears throat> As you're making your way there, I'm sure that many of you probably already gotten up this morning, exchanged gifts and been able to share gifts that you've purchased for other people and made for other folks. And, and I'm sure that you've already got a chance to do some of those things, but you probably also got an opportunity later on today and maybe later on this week to, to be able to exchange gifts with others again. And, and, and you know, there, there's still probably some, some gifts under your tree. And it was, it was that thought that I really kind of rolled through my mind as I began to uh, uh, think about some things earlier this week. Something I only learned about a, a few years ago. Uh, it's the concept of an upside-down Christmas tree. Now, I know some of you are shaking your heads that you've heard of that before. I had never heard of this before, but it began to be something that I, that I began to look at. As a matter of fact, if you go online to Google and you Google upside-down Christmas tree, you'll find over 900,000 hits that'll come back that you can sit there and look at some of that stuff. And let me know how all those hits, if you read them all, let me know how that turns out for you. I'll probably see you next Christmas by the time that that happens. But an upside-down Christmas tree is exactly what you think it is. It's a, it's a fir tree of some sort that is hung upside down, sometimes hung from the ceiling. Some of them I even saw, they, they, the, some of the artificial ones are, are created to, to, to stand upside down because they, they uh, sit on stands. And when you look at a picture of them, you can see that these trees, that, the, that the, the, the small part of the fir tree is at the bottom and the wide part of the fir tree is at the top. And... Though to my knowledge, those are not insanely popular in our culture today, the reviews describe them as working well in places where there's a tight, you know, you've got a tight space and you want to uh, put a tree up. And it also, they say, works very well uh, if you want to be able to put more Christmas tr uh, gifts underneath the tree. And so it was, it was my thought that that was probably why the upside down Christmas tree was uh, concocted to begin with is so that it could it was something commercially driven where you could you know make more more gifts underneath the tree but interestingly enough I did a little research about this matter of fact I called Dave into my office week. I said you're not gonna believe this let me tell you what I found out interestingly enough in my research I found that the origin of the upside-down Christmas tree really goes all the way finds its roots back in the seventh century in the 7th century in England, you had St. Boniface, and he was an English Benedictine monk. And he felt very compelled to go to Germany to be a missionary for Christ. And so he went to Germany, and, and it was there that he used the fir trees, which were fairly common to be found in Germany, as a means by which to illustrate the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, as, because the, the tree looked so much like a triangle. 
And those who were converted to Christianity became so enthralled with the idea of the fir tree that by the 12th century it was said that they had begun to take those and hang them upside down, particularly in, in Eastern Europe and, and in Central Europe, as a symbol of Christianity, as a symbol of showing that God the Son descended and to earth to become man. Now I'll confess with you, in my house we don't have an upside down Christmas tree. But the thought of that, the thought that that idea of it showing and giving us a, a, a representation of, of God who came down to earth, making that a visual uh, display of that, becomes very intriguing to me. In fact, it is that upside down, paradoxical nature of Christmas that I want us to examine this morning. I want us to consider the, the message from Luke 2 from that perspective, that everything in our paradigm gets turned upside down because of the message that we read here in Luke 2. If you've got your Bibles there in front of you, read along with me as I read this Christmas story. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that these shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truthfulness. We thank you for the beautiful simplicity of your word and yet the, the magnificent complexity of what it communicates to us. Father, I pray that as we spend just a little time today considering the truths that are communicated here to us, 
that you would impact us. That by your Holy Spirit, you might open our hearts and our minds to the truth of the message of the Christmas story. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, of course, this text that I have read for you this morning from Luke 2 is, is among the most memorable and among the most well-known passages in Scripture. It's the quintessential passage to read on Christmas morning. It's a beautiful passage that reminds us of the humble birth of our Lord. But it's also a thought-provoking passage as well. A passage that when seriously considered helps us to reflect upon that paradoxical and upside-down nature of Christmas. The term paradox really comes from a Greek word that, that means contrary to expectation. It is a statement, it is a, a proposition that on the surface appeal, appears to be self-contradictory, even silly at times, but when one reflects upon that statement or proposition further, they recognize it is nevertheless true. G.K. Chesterton, he, he said this, he once described a paradox as a truth standing on its head, waving its legs to get our attention. And if you think about that and you consider that thought, then you'll begin to realize that the gospel and all of the scriptures actually are filled with paradoxes. In fact, this morning, what I want to do is highlight three of them for you that I believe emerge from our text, from a reflection upon and a study of this text from Luke 2. The first paradox that I want to point out to you this morning is a beautiful one. And really, I've, I've listed that as the point number one on your outline in your bulletin this morning. A beautiful paradox. The first point is this. Jesus divested himself of his glorious state so that he could deliver us from our sinful state. James Montgomery Boyce has written that one of the great paradoxes of this text is that the one born in such lowly surroundings, in a stable of poor parents, laid in an animal's manger, was nevertheless the God of glory whose splendor before the incarnation surpassed that even of those heavenly beings who announced his birth to the shepherds. Here is a baby, but he is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. He is God in a stable. He is the supreme potentate of the universe among his lowly cattle. Such an amazing concept, I don't believe, went unnoticed by Luke when he wrote what he did. In fact, he used such beautiful words. I, I, I believe that, that that is one of the reasons he wrote what he did and why he communicated, why he brings Caesar Augustus into it. It's one of the reasons he brings Augustus into this whole idea is to show us just how far removed from him Jesus was. Caesar was a man who in his day was the supreme and powerful ruler of the world. And by bringing our attention to him, Luke really contrasts Caesar's power, his fame and his glory with the weakness and the obscurity and the humility of the baby Jesus that was born there in Bethlehem. In fact, notice the downward progression. He starts talking about Caesar Augustus. Next, he moves to the man Quirinius, who was the governor of Syria. Now, while, while Quirinius was still a very powerful man, he was much farther down on the social ladder than, than, than Caesar was. Next, Luke brings about talk of Joseph, Jesus' earthly father. Joseph was even lower still. I mean, after all, he was just a simple, poor, 
working class carpenter who was from Nazareth in Galilee, a place that, that was not very highly thought of among the Jews, not very respected. But then he moves from Joseph and then he describes Mary. Mary was this, was this poor teenage mother who was there. And based upon the values of that day, she would have been down even farther on the list, on the social ladder. And then finally, at the lowest possible point on that ladder, you find this poor, helpless baby. Born in a manger, laid in a, laid in a feeding trough. By writing what he did, Luke is, is plainly making it clear to us that Jesus was as far removed from Caesar as he could possibly be. In fact, verse 7 makes it clear. She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in that manger, in that feeding trough. Why? Because there was no room for them in the end. To quote Boyce once more, he says this, On the night that the angels appeared near Bethlehem, Caesar would have been sleeping in Rome on a golden bed beneath sheets of fine linen. He would have been attended by servants, protected by the Praetorian Guard and the many Roman legions. By contrast, the babe was wrapped in swaddling clothes and placed in a manger. His attendants were beasts. What a paradox. Furthermore, consider the simplicity of the birth of Christ. So humble so filled with indignity. Kent Hughes writes that the smell of the stench of manure and acrid straw made a contemptible bouquet that permeated the air of the stable where Jesus was born. Daryl Bach, he notes in his commentary that when his parents wrapped Jesus in cloths, the humble emptying of Christ has begun. In one respect, that really refers to what the Apostle Paul writes about in Philippians 2 when he says that Christ made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, humbling himself and being found in the appearance of a man. But Paul goes on to tell us in Philippians 2 that the, that the emptying of Christ did not stop there. As a matter of fact, it went past the manger in Bethlehem. Paul says that he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of a cross. So what we begin to recognize is that the Lord's humiliation went all the way from Bethlehem, even all the way to Calvary. And it's there that we come face to face with the upside down paradoxical nature of Christmas. You see, according to the scriptures, we learn that Jesus was born so that he might die a very cruel, torturous, and humiliating death on the cross so that sinners like you and I might be set free from the penalty of our sin and given salvation. If you think about it, that's exactly what the angel went and announced to Joseph back in Matthew's gospel when Joseph was considering what he was going to do now that he found out that Mary, his betrothed wife, was expecting and, and, and he knew that it wasn't his child. The angel came to him and said, Listen, she will bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? He will save his people from their sins. Later down in our text from Luke 2, we find that when the angels appeared to the shepherds out in the field, what did they say to them? They said, don't be afraid because we bring you good tidings of great joy that will be to all 
people. For there is born to you in the, this day in the city of David, what? A Savior who is Christ the Lord. You see, the, Jesus humbled himself. He emptied himself. He divested himself of his glorious state, which he had enjoyed in heaven before time ever began. He did all that so that he might save sinners like you and me. Men and women, boys and girls, deserving of punishment by God for the wrath of our sin, for his wrath against our sin. But he did it by dying in our place, by suffering the punishment and the death that we deserve so that we might be saved. In the year that I was born, Neil Armstrong took his first steps on the moon. And he uttered those famous words, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. But I want you to know that the greatest leap that has ever been taken on behalf of mankind happened when God the Son leapt from his rightful throne in heaven and ended up in a manger in Bethlehem and ultimately stretched out on a Roman cross at Calvary. And in doing what he did, Jesus not only endured the torture of those that he came to save, but more importantly, he absorbed the wrath of his heavenly Father. It was poured out on him. A wrath that he did not deserve, but a wrath that you and I do deserve. So that's the beautiful upside-down paradoxical nature of Christmas that I wanted us to see first this morning. That Jesus divested himself of his glorious state so that we could be delivered from our sinful state. And then as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So as we contemplate the birth of Christ on this morning, that's the first and truly beautiful paradox that I believe emerges from our text. There's another, however, it's a compelling Paradox. It's the second point on your outline this morning. Note it. A, a compelling paradox is this. Jesus embraced a human birth so that we might experience a spiritual birth. Again, pointing back to verse 7, it says that Mary brought fur, forth her firstborn son. She brought him forth and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. What that tells us is that a literal baby was born in Bethlehem. Our Lord had a true physical body. While his conception was miraculous, his birth was anything but miraculous. It was natural. It was, he was brought forth in the same natural way that all other babies at that time were brought forth. I read something recently that caused me to pause and to think. The writer said that in today's world, people rarely question the humanity of Jesus. Rarely does one hear an argument stating that Jesus was, was, was never born or that he was not a real man. Rather, the argument that is put forth today concerns his divinity. While people will readily admit that Jesus was a man, they will not agree that he was God. But such was not the case really in the first century, particularly following the birth of Christ. In those days, many of the first heresies that plagued the early church involved the fact that while people could accept that Jesus was God, they could not accept that he was human. They thought simply that 
because of his holiness and his sinlessness that he could never encounter sinful flesh and bone like you and I. In fact, you recall as we were studying through our, the epistles of John, we came across that. That was one of those things that, that, that John was having to write to combat against. You see, many tried to resolve that issue by proposing that Jesus only appeared to be a man, but he was truly not a man. Or they also even said that a, a real man existed, but that the Christ came and inhabited him for the three years that he ministered on earth and then left him before the crucifixion. But based upon what we read here in Luke's gospel about the birth of Jesus, we see that the Savior who came from heaven to deliver us from our sins was himself delivered through the natural process of childbirth. In other words, Jesus Christ embraced his humanity. As John MacArthur has put it, the child born in Bethlehem is none other than the living God come to declare himself to us. In Jesus Christ, the unknowable becomes knowable. The invisible becomes visible. The transcendent becomes intimate. The untouchable becomes touchable. The unreachable becomes embraceable. And God is never again a stranger to the believing heart. And that's really what opens us up to this, this compelling, upside-down, paradoxical nature of Christmas. You see, Christ was born so that we could be reborn. Not physically, but spiritually. Jesus, the Son of God, became the Son of Man so that we might become sons and daughters of God. Perhaps you'll recall that once Jesus was grown, he encountered a man in John chapter 3 named Nicodemus. When he encountered Nicodemus, he told Nicodemus this. In verses 3 and following of that chapter, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again or, or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So what Jesus told Nicodemus was that it takes two births to gain a lasting and an eternal relationship with God. It takes a physical birth, something that every one of us in this room have had. But it also takes a spiritual birth. This is what Jesus describes as being born again. It's what he describes as being born from above, being born of the Spirit. And what we learn is that it took Christ's coming to earth, it took his physical birth so that you and I could experience spiritual birth. This is such a compelling paradox because it tells you the infinite love that God had for sinners just like you and I. In fact, you should know that John chapter 3, most of the time what rolls directly off our lips when we say that is John 3, 16. Because that's the verse that we all have learned. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Back in the opening verses of John's gospel, John introduces Jesus as the one who created the world. 
Then he says he's the one who came and lived in the world among his creation. And then down in John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, he says, He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born, listen, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So as we contemplate Christmas and what it means, we conclude that there's a beautiful paradox there that, that Jesus divested himself of his glorious state so that he might deliver us from our sinful state. But we also recognize that there's a compelling paradox that shows us that Jesus embraced his human birth so that we might experience a spiritual birth, that we might be born again. But notice with me the final paradox that I want to point out to you from our text this morning. The final upside-down paradoxical nature of Christmas that I want you to see is this. There's a promising paradox. You see, Jesus occupied a manger in Bethlehem so that we could occupy a mansion in heaven. Really, to get the full appreciation of our Lord's humble beginnings, remember that it was while Mary was in her final stages of pregnancy that she and Joseph traveled into what would have been for them a very strange town. It's true that, that Joseph, and, and, and that he had ancestors who had come from that area, but for them, they would have been relatively unfamiliar with Bethlehem. It was not home for them. And Mary, as a teenager, pregnant with her first child, no doubt would have suffered physically certainly the pain and the travail that comes with, with giving birth, but she would have also no doubt suffered the anxiety of going, where am I going to deliver this child? Where will I be when, when the time comes for me, to, for me to give birth? And so the couple attempted to find a place to stay. Luke calls it an inn. It was really a guest house of sorts where travelers often slept but it was certainly no Holiday Inn. It was certainly no, no hotel like we are accustomed to seeing today. It was not even one of those no-tail motels kind of places. As one has stated, in all likelihood, it was squalid and dirty, especially by contemporary standards. And yet, even that place was packed. Joseph and Mary couldn't even get in there. So Mary and Joseph had to do the next best thing. They went out and found a place outside with the animals. Some say it was a barn. Others describe it as being a hollowed out cave where they would have, have slept with the animals. Nevertheless, what we know is that it was a place where animals were because it says that Jesus was laid in a manger. I think in our terminology, we think of a manger being a nice little, sworn, little warm bed. It wasn't. It was a feeding trough. It could have been made of wood that stood up on the ground, but and oftentimes it was just a hollowed out place in the ground where food was just thrown on the ground and that's where the animals came and ate from. It very easily could have been a spot like that where the Lord first found his resting place. Whatever the case, that was where the Son of God was born. And Luke tells us that the reason why was because there was no room for them in the end. But I want you to consider the upside down paradoxical nature of that fact. You see, though when Christ came to this earth, 
there was no room for him in the end. Or as we read there in John's gospel earlier, that there was no room in the hearts of the people for whom he came to receive him. Yet he still made this wonderful promise to those who would believe him. In John 14, verses 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many mansions or many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. As one has put it, he came to where we are so that we could go to where he is. What an amazing thought. Friends, that is what the birth of Christ means to us as humans. The upside down, paradoxical nature of the incarnation of Christ is that he divested himself of his glory and was born as a lowly child in a manger so that you and I might benefit, that we might be saved from our sins, that we might be born again and one day inherit the blessing of living with our Lord in heaven forever. And that then leads me to my sermon in the sentence this morning, which is this. The beautiful, compelling, and promising message of Christmas is that in Christ, God has reversed our fortunes at his cost. He took it all upon himself and paid the penalty and paid the debt that we owed. He did it all for us. That's what makes the message of Christmas truly the most wonderful time of year. That's why we can sing that song as Christians. We ought to be able to sing that song with gusto. It truly is the most wonderful time of year. It's a time for us to be reminded of the great love that God has shown us by sending his son to be a ransom for us, to, to redeem us. The Apostle Paul sums up the upside down paradoxical nature of Christmas this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. And what that means is that in Christ, God has reversed our fortunes at his cost. He paid a debt that we could never pay so that we could inherit the blessings that we could never earn. I love how Jim Daly, I was sitting at my desk this week contemplating writing this sermon and, and I got an email that came in and it came from, from Jim Daly who, who was the president of Focus on the Family and he had, he had, it was a link to an article that he had written and in that he said this, the creator of heaven and earth gave up what he had so that we might receive what we need. I'm going to say that again. Think about this. The creator of heaven and earth gave up what he had so that we might receive what we need. The question is, how do we receive it? Here's where the upside down paradoxical nature of Christmas and the gospel forces an upside down paradoxical response from you and me. You see, the scriptures call for men, women, boys, and girls to respond to the message of the gospel. It requires faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and repentance of our sin. Matthew 16, verses 24 and 25, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Friends, self-denial, taking up one's cross, losing your life so that you may find it, all of that runs counter to our normal way of thinking and responding. Our natural response is self-indulgence. Our natural response is that at all costs, we avoid struggle, we avoid pain, we avoid all those things that are associated with taking up a cross. And the thought of giving up control, the thought of losing our lives, seems like such a foreign concept, particularly in the day and the age and the world in which we live. And yet this is the response that the gospel calls for. We relinquish our belief and our trust in ourselves and we embrace a robust faith in Jesus who has done for us what we could never do. And in doing that, we let go of all of that that we hold dear. We let go of our goals. We let go of our dreams. We let go of our plans. We let go of our pride. We let go of our vanity. We let go of all of that so that we might grasp tightly to the one who by his very nature had it all and gave it up for us. The beautiful, compelling, promising message of Christmas is that Christ in him, God has reversed our fortunes at his cost. He gave up what he had so that we might receive what we need. When you leave here and you go back to your homes or you go to family or relatives, you may not go back to a home that has an upside-down Christmas tree in it. But I want you to know that the upside-down paradoxical nature of the gospel is offered to you this morning to believe and to receive. As the angel announced to the shepherds, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. God has given us the greatest gift ever given. He has given us the gift of himself through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said,